It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. And in today's special guest, Daniel Shaw, LCSW's book, Traumatic Narcissism, Relational Systems of Subjugation, he demonstrates how narcissism can best be understood not merely as character, but as the result of the specific trauma of subjugation in which one person is required to become the object for a significant other who demands hegemonic subjectivity. Before continuing his postgraduate education in psychoanalysis, Dan was a student of yoga and meditation for more than a decade, living in India for several periods of study and traveling extensively as an international organizer and manager of yoga education programs. It was out of these experiences that Dan developed his interest in the study of cults and charismatic leaders. These studies in turn led Dan to develop the concept of the traumatizing narcissist's relational system, the subject of his book, Traumatic Narcissism. Dan Shaw, LCSW, is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City and in Nyack, New York. He received his master's degree in social work from Yeshiva University in New York in 1996 and was certified as a psychoanalyst in 2000. And he has been providing, providing professional counseling for former members of cultic groups and friends and family members of those involved in cults since 1994. I am so excited to bring Dan Shaw here today because he has such a fantastic perspective on this, and you're going to be really, really intrigued by what he has to say. So let's get started. <clears throat> Good morning, Dan. Welcome. Good morning, Randy. Thank you so much, and thank you for your kind introduction. Oh, you are so welcome. You're, you're very deserving of it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so your idea of cults developed following your own involvement with a religious group led by a guru for whom you worked full-time for more than 10 years. Would you mind sharing your experience? I'd be happy to. I, uh, yes. So uh, before I became a psychotherapist and before I got my graduate degree in social work, I started adult life as an actor and I worked professionally, but not very much. I was, you know, uh, very much a starving actor and uh, often out of work. And I was um, having a very hard time by the end of my 20s with depression. And uh, I, I, I had tried some low-cost psychotherapy, which is the best I could afford then, and it really wasn't helpful. Uh, the thing that ended up being helpful was when friends introduced me 
to a meditation teacher. So these were theater friends, and there was a program upstate in the ashram of Swami Muktananda, upstate, in the, upstate New York, where Marsha Mason and other well-known theater people were going to be introducing Siddha Yoga and meditation and inviting all the actors and dancers and musicians and everybody else in New York to come up and learn about meditation. And a friend of mine was involved. He asked me to come up. And that was really the beginning of feeling like I had found something that helped with my depression. The meditation was peaceful. It was lovely uh, up there. It smelled good. The food was good. People looked good. And, um, you know, it really gave me a ray of hope. So I started to practice this meditation, and it did lift my spirits. It did help me feel more functional. I still wasn't clear about my direction and what would I do if I wasn't going to pursue a career in the theater. And I was I was pretty scared and lost at that particular moment in my life. Very, um, uh, you know, feeling very vulnerable. And I just got more and more involved with activities in this ashram. There was a branch right near my apartment in Manhattan. And the more I got involved, the more I began to feel like I could make that my life and it would be worthwhile. I would be practicing a spiritual life and I would also be helping others to learn what a spiritual life meant and how it could be practiced. So I really bought into that heavily. And um, it wasn't that long before I decided I would like to live in the community and work in the community. Eventually, uh, uh, I did that. I left behind my frustrated ambitions in the theater. And I uh, I got very involved in this community. It seemed like a, a good thing to do. It seemed like a worthy cause. Uh, eventually, I went to India after my father died. I had saved up a lot of money to do that and to travel with the successor guru, the first one had died, his successor, known as Guru Mai, had taken over. I uh, I traveled on her staff until my funds ran out, and then I was taken on staff at a very small monthly stipend, but with room and board and um, other expenses for travel. So little by little on her staff, I rose up to higher levels of responsibility. Now, um, initially, the benefit that I experienced was really remarkable in terms of uh, managing my depression and feeling like I had a purpose. But as I spent more and more time in the group, I witnessed more and more disturbing behavior from the guru and more and more disturbing behavior within the community. And I'll just summarize it briefly as a kind of a glorification of cruelty, as though cruelty were always going to be for your own good. And in order for people to become stronger and more pure in their spiritual life, you had to be purified, which meant you had to endure being treated cruelly. Well, I 
I've put up with that for a number of years, but I'd say in the last five years of my involvement, it got harder and harder for me to accept the cruelty. And this would be um, actually take the form of being belittled, humiliated, and intimidated repeatedly in the relationship with the guru. I, I'm making a, I'm underlying those words because they come in later after I left this group in terms of how I understood the behavior of the traumatizing narcissist. So, and, so anyway, it was five years before I finally did leave that I began to be exhausted and burned out from having to endure the intimidation, the belittling, and the humiliation. When I finally did leave, I had moved out of the ashram. The guru, the guru had told me I couldn't live there anymore. It felt like I was being banished or expelled. But in fact, she continued to give me lots of work to do as I was trying to start my life over back in Manhattan. And, um, uh, you know, uh, but it was about a year but almost, but very quickly, I met a woman up there that I decided I was going to date, and we fell in love and decided to get married. So once I was not living in the community and I was in therapy and I had a, a, a love in my life and plans for a life together um, and a family, I and I began to develop my ideas about having a a career as a psychotherapist, I eventually then had the strength to finally leave when the New Yorker magazine published a, a tremendous expose of City Yoga. So this was in the fall of 1994. And it was just very clear as, as I heard about the article before it came out, and I heard about the, what, what it was going to say about the abuses the sexual abuse, the predatory behavior, the cruelty of the guru towards her followers. It just was, it just snapped. I, I, my wife and I both immediately said, that's it. This is a cult. I don't want another thing to do with this. And from that point on, we separated ourselves from the community. And, uh, but you have to understand, I was able to do that because I had emotional support. I had a plan for my professional life. Right. And, uh, you know, I had supports in my life to be able to break free of that bondage. Wow. So it was, How amazing. it was out of that. Oh, and I'll just say one more thing, Randy, not to go on and on, but um, I left the groups simultaneous to beginning my degree, my master's program in social work. So um, I really, from the point I began grad school, I was really free to try to figure out what this relationship I'd been in was about and how to understand it. Thankfully, you got out of this thing. It sounds, you know, well, it sounds very narcissistic. In the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the essay you had written, um, published in the Cultic Studies Review and online entitled Traumatic Abuse in Cults. 
You right. argue that you argue that the narcissistic guru, the kind who exploits and controls others, inflating himself by deflating those he surrounds himself with, needs others desperately, but that he disavows dependency, which he views as weak and shameful, or in this case it was she. Right. He needs to lure yeah. others into becoming dependent on him, which then allow him to persist in his delusion that only others are needy, not himself. Um, this okay. is really so. You say that he externalizes dependency and with it shame. Um, That's right. I found that interesting, and that basically explains what you were just saying, right? Yeah, yeah. That that's really the core of what I wanted to try to convey. Once I started to formulate those ideas, I felt like I was liberating myself because. I realized that in my relationship to the guru, I was carrying so much shame about not being good enough. And I realized I was carrying the guru's shame. Uh, so the guru didn't have to feel it or know it or acknowledge it. Oh, wow. What a, you know, what a revelation. <laughs> That's you know that's such a revelation and you know and it it's hard to see it when you know when the veil is over your eyes um, you oh know, yeah until oh, you yeah. can till you can get out of it and lift that veil and then boom there it is you know um, exactly yeah the study of relational relationality led you to the study of narcissism um, right. And at the time, what you read spoke mostly of narcissism as either healthy or pathological, with the pathological aspects viewed as innate, arising from genetic disposition more than environment. So what, right. does, what does pathological mean to you in terms of describing the narcissist or narcissists in general? Right. Well, look, not to get too uh, academic, but there is a psychoanalytic definition of narcissism and and it's a little bit more complicated than the 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 general idea of narcissism and i'm not saying that it's better for that uh but it is different and the psychoanalytic idea of a pathological narcissist is that this person displays both the overt grandiosity of the narcissist and that kind of manipulative uh controlling behavior of the narcissist and that underneath that behavior there is a tremendous uh, insecure unstable sense of their own self-esteem so that hiding behind their grandiosity is their insecurity and if they present as insecure they're actually masking their grandiosity so that definition in psychoanalysis is different from what we currently, you know, what we typically think of the narcissist as just that grandiose, self-absorbed, manipulating, controlling uh, person, whether it's a man or a woman. And, and it's definitely um, observed in, you know, in whatever gender, in every gender, and in every sexual orientation, and in every race and class. It's not a uh, specific to one group thing. It's a human thing, right? Right. I I wanted to, what I wanted to talk about was the kind of narcissist 
that I had been exposed to who held so much power over others. And I also know that my clients were telling me about narcissists in their families who similarly held so much power over others. And, and so I started to see, wow, this isn't just about cults. This is about families. It's about um, schools or, um, you know, uh, workplaces. This kind of person can, can rise to a level of power and then, you know, administer this kind of cruel control over others in, in any kind of context. And um, so that, you know, that definition of the pathological narcissist is only useful in some cases, in my view, because when you have a really traumatizing narcissist situation, that person is disavowing all and any insecurity, any dependency, any shame, and they are going to make sure that you feel that you're the needy, shameful, small one. And I really wanted to, like, step away from the psychoanalytic view of, oh, it's both things going on, and show that there are narcissists who hold one end of that pole and force the other end of it onto others. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And so you termed this crazy, well, not crazy person, but this predator, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> basically. Right. You termed the it trauma- the traumatizing narcissist, right? That's right. And that is so right on. <laughs> that is a much better um, term for these people. Um, you talk about the relational system of the traumatizing narcissist as a system of subjugation, the object the objectification of one person in a relationship as the means of enforcing dominance of the subjective that, subjectivity of the other. Right, um, right. So subjugation, what do you mean by subjugation? It's not a yeah, word that... you know... It, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's, um, I, I chose that word very carefully. Um, it's a word that uh, comes from uh, the root of, uh, of the word yoke, same root, and cattle are yoked together to be herded. And in Rome, ancient Rome, slaves were yoked at the neck in pairs to be herded. So when a human being is subjugated, they are dehumanized, enslaved, and exploited. And that is what the traumatizing narcissist is always doing in their relationships. They are they are not using people, uh, for, you know, to supply them with what they need. And in order to get what they need from others, they subjugate others. They they control. They in some cases literally enslave, but figuratively they're, they, they're creating a bond with the, a person, whether it's their child or their sibling or their spouse or their, whoever it is, or their employee, 
or their patients, they create a bond where they can control and exploit the other. So that is what I mean by subjugation. Okay. And, I, yeah, I call it taking taking the person hostage because basically yes. that's what happens. You are a hostage yes. of the narcissist. Um, so yes. that sort of describes that. And um, so um, you talk about psychoanalyst Stephen Mitchell who rejected the premise that narcissism was simply the result of intra-psychoanalytic developmental processes gone wrong. Um, right. And he talks about um, exposure to not good enough parental responses and the not regulated well enough narcissistic vulnerabilities and blind spots of the caregivers. Right. Um, So these relational patterns are at the root of these scenarios in which Mm -hmm, patients mm -hmm. repeatedly find themselves trapped. Can you talk about that? Sure. Please? Yeah. You know, in, again, in psychoanalysis, which, you know, is not all of psychology. There are many other psychology uh, theories be, other than psychoanalysis, um, like cognitive behavioral theories and so on. But um, I was trained in psychoanalysis. And uh, for a long time, narcissism was seen as stemming from some kind of genetic disposition, some kind of innate tendency that somebody would have from birth, you know, to be, uh, to have that disposition, to right. have a, uh, a hostile and aggressive disposition towards others, to want to control and exploit others. Right. And um, within psychoanalysis, uh, there were many voices who had different ideas about narcissism. And Steve Mitchell became one of the most important voices back in the 80s, 90s, when he first began teaching and writing. And um, he since passed away. But, um, you know, he opened up that door in one of his essays about narcissism to understand and, and, and help me understand that people aren't just born as narcissists. They have to be, it has to, it's, stems from how they are brought up. And very often, now this isn't 100% true in every case, but it very often is the case, just to be clear, that a person who grows up to be very narcissistic will have been parented by one or both parents who were also very narcissistic. And that, that upbringing for that child might include a tremendous amount of shaming and uh, being humiliated. And, uh, and that person who grows up to be the narcissist has decided that they are not going to let anybody make them feel ashamed. But unfortunately, the, the way that they end up managing not to not to feel as though they are shameful and small or weak or impotent, they create this delusion of their own perfection, their own superiority. And in order for them to actually maintain that delusion that I'm totally superior, I'm blameless and shameless and perfect, they have to make other people bad. Other people are wrong. Other people are shameful. Other people are weak. 
And as I'm sure your your followers and readers and patients all have come to understand, because it's made very clear in your book, you know, this is the classic situation for somebody in a relationship with a narcissist, the one, the kind I call a traumatizing narcissist. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what was I going to say? I had a comment I was going to make. <laughs> uh, actually, I have one more thought to yeah, answer. Yeah, go ahead, that, and maybe it'll. Okay. Just, just that you know, people who get on, let's say, social media, Instagram, and Facebook, and so on, and they are kind of showing you all the pictures of how great they look or how beautiful their vacation is or their car or their home and their food and so on. We, you know, there's a, there's sort of this facile way that these people get called narcissistic. You know what? To me, that's just like normal, you know, normal behavior. Okay. Let me show off how great a time I had on vacation. Let me show you how great my kids are and their backflips, whatever. It's not, it's not destructive, and it's not subjugating of others. Right. And I really wanted to distinguish that there's a kind of narcissism that, that uh, isn't just about vanity or showing off or being self-centered, you know, somebody at the dinner table who keeps talking about themselves too much. But, you know, that person might have a good heart, and they might have generous impulses, and, you know, they might love their... Uh, other people in a in a kind way, but the traumatizing narcissist is destructive, and that and subjugating other people is what they need to do to maintain their own hyperinflation. And subjugating other people is always dehumanizing and cruel. And I just wanted to make that point and make that clear in terms of how I was thinking about narcissism. Well, I'm, you know, I'm right there with you. Um, You know, I tell people there are no redeeming qualities to a narcissist. Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) there aren't, you know, it's, they walk through this life and all they do is prey on people, hurt people, um, take away their self-esteem take away their ability to respond to life in a normal way, take away their intuition. I mean, there is nothing good about these people, um, which is so hard for for people to grasp because generally those who are vulnerable enough to get trapped by these narcissists are generally really super kind people who want to see the best in people. And that's why they end up staying, right? right? You know, and so when I tell them, I'm sorry to tell you, but this person has no redeeming qualities. They just cannot wrap their head around it initially. Eventually they can. That's right. That's right. Well, I think it's even harder when that narcissistic person was their parent. Mm, And uh, when that's the case, um, and I see that's kind of, most of the people I see, I would I would um, refer to as adult children of traumatizing narcissists. That tends to be, um, aside from cult survivors, uh, I, that's the main population I work with. And they are uh, often the adult children of a traumatizing narcissist. And when, when it's your parent, 
what gets complicated is, and, and I think this is true also, for example, of romantic partners who are narcissists and traumatizing narcissists. There is something about their ability to make you feel like they love you that has some kernel of humanity in it, some kernel of truth. It's as though that's a part of them that can flash, but it cannot be sustained in them. So actually genuine, unselfish love, they often can show a flash of that either to a, uh, their own child or to a partner. And it is a hook. It becomes incredibly seductive and, and magnetic for somebody who's, you know, open and sensitive and vulnerable and empathetic. They see in this charismatic person this flash of what seems like real love. That flash is quickly replaced with the narcissist's predatory ways of needing to intimidate, belittle, and humiliate in order to control and exploit. But that that little flash of something that looks like and feels like love, it's very hard for people to let go of. Yes, and I I can relate to that personally because I'm the daughter of a narcissistic mother. I could not see that until I was 40 years old. Um, You know, and when it became so oppressive that I was – something woke me up and said, oh, my gosh, Mm. I can't look at this another moment. And then I began to learn about this and open up. But I find that these adult children of narcissistic abuse, um, you're right, they come maybe like late 30s, mid 40s, mid 50s. It's generally when people wake up to this. Um, That's right. You know, there's there's some things that you said I really want to quote. Um, You said, recognition is an essential component of love, and it is equally as traumatic in development to feel unrecognized as a person as it is to have one's desire to give love to the parent unrecognized or in the Mm. case of parental sexual abuse, grotesquely misrecognized. Um, Mm. You know, these children... um, you know, children who feel very invisible and mm-hmm. very abused in these situations, yes, you, you nailed it right there with that, you know, with that comment. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's, you know, no matter how much they heal, that childhood um, experience of being unrecognized as a person and mm-hmm. having their love unrecognized that is something very difficult to get over. It's very deep. It's very deep. Uh, yeah. It, it's really it's really interesting because it's bad not to feel loved and not to have your love, uh, and not to feel loved and not to feel recognized as lovable. It's, it's traumatic. It's, it's, the trauma is compounded by the fact that we are genetically programmed as human beings to give love to our caregivers. If all you have to do is turn on National Geographic and watch for a few hours um, the shows where the, the bear and the lion and the tiger and the, you know, 
they all give birth, the mammals anyway, and then the and then you know then you see the kids and the cubs and the and all of the little ones cuddling and imprinting and playing and they uh, they want to give their love to the parent. They'll lick the parent's face. And it's not just because they want the parent to feed them. It's because they need to give that love. And our need to give our love to a parent when we're born, when that is thwarted and frustrated, uh, you know, it, it, it compounds the trauma of not feeling love. And I'll tell you how, how it gets fr- uh, frustrated as uh, in infancy and childhood by a parent, you keep trying to give your love to a narcissistic parent. And basically, they want you to know that your love is never good enough, that there's always something missing in in the sincerity or the level of devotion that you're trying to give. Because the narcissist, resents the fact that their child is dependent on them and the narcissist resents that uh, their child needs them. When the child needs the narcissistic parent, that parent says to himself, what do you mean you need something? Uh, How could you need anything from me? I'm a perfect parent. It's almost like a child doesn't have a chance to be a normal child. They can't take what they need from the parent, and they can't give what they need to give. It's a real double bind for a, a child hor- of a narcissist. You know, how horrible, and yes, I know it. I'm one of three, um, and we each experienced it a little bit differently, but the, the, the sibling who was completely deprived of love and attention, my mother would never even look at her. She right. is in her 60s, and she's still suffering. Um, I yeah. think she's developed a yeah. personality disorder as a result of it. Um, she's just never been able to get over that. Yes. You yeah, know, it's um, tragic. It is, it's, it is so tragic. And, you know, I say these people are criminals because you cannot – this is this is criminal behavior to treat a child this way. It is. It you is, know, if they were right, I mean, they're not hitting. They're not hitting crime. them. Right, they're not right. hitting them, but they're they're destroying their minds, destroying their futures. I, they're destroying their hopes of feeling like they can have any self-esteem, and it's a moral crime. I I yeah. would put it that way. You know, yeah. obviously, they can't be brought up to child protection services. Um, nobody's nobody's going to approve something like that and have the child taken out of there because the parents are narcissists. But but that's part of the problem for the survivor is there's no justice, right? Nobody, you know, what do you mean your parents, your mother loves you? Come on, they always, people would tell you. Or what are you talking about? You know, he's a good provider. Why, what, you know, so there's this tendency for the survivor to feel like there's no justice. Yeah. I, I, and that's why I think the kind of work that you do, Randy, is important, that people at least get a sense that they're seen and heard and recognized and, they, and that there is 
a community of people who recognize the injustice. Yes, yes, it does. It releases people. You know, just hearing that their experience is validated, and I get it. You know, I know, I get right. it. Um, is like such a relief because the first, you know, the first um, session that I have with people, they often say, uh, you know, I ask them to tell me their story, and they say lots of things, and then they keep saying, "Does that make sense?" Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Um, because they're not sure. They're not sure of yeah. what they saw. But, that's right. Um, that's you know, that's and, what I mean by the, the trauma of the attack on the subjectivity of the prey. The, 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 pre, the predator attacks the subjectivity of his prey, and that's how he gains control. You lose your own faith in your own subjective reality. Right? Yes, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, and IT2 learn how to internally validate because what I say is, you know, you're only, when you've been raised by a narcissist, you're only as good as you're told you are in that moment. So you never learn internal validation. And so you walk through life very insecure. So I teach people how to gain internal validation because they're never going to get validated by their abuser. Never. That's right. That's right. It's the hardest part. That is very hard. Absolutely. You know, there's in some people where I think the ones who struggle the most, um, it's almost as though they want the validation and they're not going to give up until they get it. And right. since they're never going to get it, they're not developing their own internal validation. Yes. And you have to do some kind of grief work around, around finally coming to terms with the fact that your parent is never going to give you the validation you waited for up to that point in your life, 30, 40, 50. You're not going to get it there. And if you don't learn to internally validate, you're not going to, you're never going to have a sense of faith and trust in yourself. And so I agree that's so crucial. It's crucial. It's crucial, as is learning self-love, which when you've been told that everything, you know, let me just read this. You say, through the developmental stages of the child who, is, who as an adult becomes, becomes the traumatizing narcissist, his parents believe mm. that their anger, their unhappiness, their sadism, and any other unpleasant emotions within them were the result of what their bad, selfish child forced them to feel. Right. Um, you know, and... So, you know, different cho- children interpret this kind of abuse in different ways. Um, so some of them become codependent. Yeah. Pleasers, they learn that pleasing creates some emotional control over their environment. Some. That's um, right. That's right. You know, but there's all different reactions, and of course, becoming the traumatic, the traumatic narcissist um, is one of those outcomes. 
It is and one so, of the possibilities, right. Right. It's one of the possibilities. Um, you know, the other thing that people generally say to me um, in the very beginning is they say, I think I'm a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that a lot, too. Right? Yep. And I say, yeah. well, I can assure you you're not, because if you were, you wouldn't be seeking me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really true that um, narcissists look down on therapists as frauds and phonies and useless. You know, oh, I know more than that therapist knows about everything is typical narcissistic statement. So uh, it's hard with couples. That's a subject I, I look at in my book. When one of the partners is a narcissist, a traumatizing narcissist, and you try to haul that, let's, let's go with husband, you try to haul him into therapy with you, and uh, the therapist starts to empathize with you, uh, that narcissistic partner is going to be like, that therapist doesn't know what they're talking about. They're ignorant. <laughs> they're, they don't have enough training. That's just because you considered the possibility that, that narcissist might have something to do with the problem in the marriage. No, right. the narcissist never has anything to do with a problem in a relationship. It is always the other person's fault. That's right. And that's why, and they go to, they go to counseling so that they, they think they're going to prove that the other person right. is the problem. <laughs> that's right, exactly. And, right, and that's when it, they get outed, it. once they get outed, yep. they're they're... Furious. They're, they're indignant. How the, right. I I I know. And they'll look at your certificates on your wall and say, you, you know, oh well, you went to that college. You can't get a good education at that. I mean, the, I've they can go pretty far <laughs> in their condescension and their contempt. Oh, yes. and that's that's an important word in terms of narcissism: the contempt for others. Uh, you know, so that. Others are always made to feel small, belittled. That's an important uh, weapon of the of the predatory, traumatizing narcissist. Um, so you summarize your understanding of the workings of the traumatizing narcissist relationship system um, and how the parent impacts the children as you, you have four things. Um, intergenerational trauma. Delusional, infallibility, and entitlement, externalization yeah. of shame, suppression of the subjectivity of the other. And I think we kind of went over all these things, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Pretty much. Yep. Okay. Okay. So, you know, in the beginning we were talking about how they thought it was nature versus nurture, you know. And when I began yeah. studying this topic, there was not a definitive, you know, some people were saying, well, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of up in the air as to which it is. You know, I think that there's a genetic component to it because you have a parent that's got it. And often their parent, they had a parent that had it. So it's multigenerational. I, yep. Yes, I agree. So, I agree. Right. So there is this genetic component that makes one vulner, more vulnerable um, than someone else. But 
it is the nurture. It is that exposure that is yes. so humiliating and so impossible for a child to accept. They don't know what to, to do with it. Against. Right. Yeah, they don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. And how assault. do they defend themselves? How do you defend yourself from the parent you're looking to for love and protection when right. that parent is actually the one who's unsafe? It's a paradox Absolutely. that children, children just can't handle that paradox. No. No. It's, so, it's just uh, so, so sad. Yeah, it's, it's terribly sad. There's something you said I just wanted to pick up on there that, um, oh, I'm going to forget now. But, um, <laughs> You're doing what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, no, but, I, no, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's what you said is true, that um, there is a genetic component. But if the environment isn't shaming and belittling and, and humiliating and, and intimidating, you know, if the if the if there's enough in the environment, um, you know, you can channel that narcissistic tendency into something more constructive and 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 not destructive. And you know, so there's a lot of leaders in various um, venues in in our society who are charismatic and who are kind of narcissistic, but. They had enough um, in their upbringing that made it possible for them to generally channel those energies into something constructive. But the the true traumatizing narcissist doesn't have a a way of re-channeling that energy because they're constantly, constantly preoccupied with proving to themselves that they're superior and that they're infallible and that it's only other people who were wrong and bad and not them. So true. So true. You know, I say, and I truly believe, that um, this is an epidemic. There, they are, there are so many of these predators walking among us. Mm-hmm. It's mm. very scary, you know. And, um, and I counsel people all over the world. So I find it in African tribes. I find it Mm. everywhere, in every corner of this world, which is Mm. just amazing to me. And the the thing about it is that um, it's always the same. The pattern is the same. The response of the the victim or target is the same. You know, they all do it, and it's amazing. They even use the same words. Yeah, yeah, and it's true of uh, cult leaders as well. Um, Those of us who work in that area, and there's, you know, maybe a dozen uh, licensed mental health professionals working in in the area of cults, uh, cult counseling, and there's also a lot of coaches and educators and legal professionals involved, also academics. Um, and uh, we all joke with each other because uh, we all tend to know each other. It's a smallish kind of field, the ex-cult world. Um, we joke that, um, you know, it's like the cult leaders all have the manual and they're just like uh, <laughs> po- totally following the manual page by page. 
And this is what many followers who come in to recover from cult abuse uh, will also be amazed by as they learn more about it. They go to conferences, they hear about it, and they they're like, "How could your guru and your cult leader have done and said exactly the same thing as mine?" It's crazy. But it crazy. but not only is that true of the cult leaders, it's true of the non-cult leader traumatizing narcissists as well. Yes. It's a it's a it's a universal set of it's a it's a personality disorder that has a particular uh, way of, of forming, uh, there's a way of understanding it, and there's a way of expressing it that really, you know, uh, absolutely is is universal to that particular kind of person. Yes, it's, it is. It's really kind of mind-blowing. I mean, I find this extremely interesting. Um, you know, and I'm really, I'm so happy to know you and know that you're doing this work as well. Um, because many, I should say, probably, I want to use the word most, I don't know, but if I offend you, tell me. <laughs> but most um, psychotherapists or, or um, psychologists do not know what to do with this. And they don't recognize the... Um, what the person is going through. They don't know how to jump. They can't see this pattern for some reason. Um, so I don't know that um, that this is something that the that psychologists are trained to really recognize. They may recognize the, the traumatic narcissist, but I don't know that they recognize the syndrome caused by it. And so yeah, when people I would come agree to, that that's right. Right. Yeah, and when, sorry, so when people ahead, come to me after having been to one therapist after another after another, they are more traumatized than before they started with these people because they've been basically told to work on these relationships. That's right. Um, that's right. You know, well, that's and it, the same. Mm-hmm. Yep, I have the same experience. I get people coming in telling me they talk to this, one after another. And basically, just as you say, told to work on the relationship. And, uh, you know, I often they'll say, and you are the first person who told me how to understand this. And, uh, you know, it being able to understand predatory abuse and subjugation in a relationship. Look, you know, I'll tell you one thing most therapists now are more clear about is domestic violence. So that became, that became something that everybody got educated about starting, I'd say in the eighties and anybody who was in the mental health profession needed to know about that. And the medical professions needed to know about that. Right. So it became a, a, a subject of public interest and public discourse and certainly the mental health profession wanted to be on board. Right. That's not that's not true of what we're talking about. This kind of traumatic relationship with a traumatizing narcissist. There is not yet a full uh kind of understanding of this problem in society and it's not fully understood by the mental health profession. It's just not. That's my no. experience as well. It's not, and I don't believe you can learn about this in books or through lectures. You have to live it. 
and you lived it, and I lived it. And you have to understand the workings of this because it is so counterintuitive to anything that anybody, any logic that anybody has. It does not make any sense. And so unless you've lived it, it will not make sense. You're right. I, I, I do agree. But I, I nevertheless made that effort in my book to talk to the mental health professional about this. And I have to say, the kind of book I wrote, which is an academic publisher at a high price because they don't expect to sell a lot of copies. Uh, my book sold 7,000 copies so far wow. and it's still selling. And that's very unusual. This kind of academic book for mental health professionals, if it sells a thousand, they think of that as a bestseller. So my hope is that the concepts are getting to be more understood in the mental health professionals. Now, I've only, you know, I've only reached the tip of the iceberg of the professional mental health world, but still... It's a little something, right? And that was my hope. Uh, my next book, I'm hoping, will address both the mental health professional and the layperson equally. Uh, the first book's a little more academic, but uh, still, I think, readable for the most part. The um, the new book, is, I'm, I'm going to hope to make it even more readable because... Um, you know, look, mental health professionals need to get this and understand it, and some will and some won't, but the victims really need help to know what they've been through, and that's always been what I wanted to try to help with. Oh, thank you. I'm so thankful for, you know, for the work that you do. It's it's just nice to know. Sometimes I feel, and you may feel this too, sometimes I feel very alone in my work here because um, there aren't a lot of people that understand it. But I wrote my book with sort of the same, mine's, you know, mine's very reader-friendly. <clears throat> I yes. wrote the book with the same goal, though, to reach therapists. And I have actually put it in the hands of of several therapists that's my goal you know um yeah yeah because we need help I, I here agree. dan we need help yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be a better understood phenomenon that is similar to uh domestic violence it's similar to uh abuse child abuse it's you know and yet it's got its own unique uh, form and and it's and it is hard to recognize. I think like what you said, Randy, is so true. Our our customs and norms, our cultural norms, kind of can't we can't wrap our head around this. Wait a minute, people. This is not the way people act unless they're sociopathic criminals, you know, right. unless they're like Jeffrey Dahmer or somebody. Well, no, it's like. It's, uh, you can be a functional person in the community and be perpetrating this kind of abuse, and it's not so easy to recognize. And and more than that, we don't want to we don't want to think it, you know. So no. that's I think a big part of why the problem has remained obscure. And I appreciate your work very much. It's very clear. 
very readable, very accessible, and very thorough. And I Thank know you. that um, I know that the people who uh, you speak with and who read your book are really getting a lot of really good information. So I'm 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 glad to le- I, I'm so glad you reached out. It was great to learn about you and to know of somebody in Florida. Although, <laughs> like 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 me, I guess we're both working internationally right now and right. with COVID more than ever. <laughs> Right. And I work remotely yeah. mainly, you know, mainly um, by either telephone or Zoom. So um, I've seen a few clients um, at my home, but may, may, mainly it's um, it's remotely. But, um, yeah. but anyway, yeah. yeah. But I'm glad to know, know you in New York and, um, you know, this is just this is so special to me, and I'm I'm really grateful that you agreed to come on my show because I'm. Um, after I heard you speak, it was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> my listeners need to hear you. So anyway, we're um, we're talking about your book, Traumatic, Traumatic Narcissism: Relation, Relational Systems of Subjugation. And um, Dan, um, tell us how if you have a website and how we can get your book. Yeah, um, my website is. Uh, Daniel Shaw, LCSW, that's Licensed Clinical Social Worker. So DanielShawLCSW.com is my website. And the book is available at Amazon. Uh, it's also available as uh, for Kindle. Um, so um, it's sold through Amazon and, and also the publishers, Rutledge, which has its own uh, site for purchase. But I think Amazon is the easiest. Um, and, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, the, the price, it's a little pricey because, again, it's an academic book, and that's how those kinds of books are priced for a, what they think is going to be a, a smaller market. But, um, yeah, I'm hoping to get the price down on my next one and <laughs> the print's a little larger as well. Uh, okay. But, you know. <laughs> but if you don't mind a little bit of a small print and a slightly higher price, Amazon is the place to go. <laughs> okay. Sounds great. All right. Well, this was a great discussion. Um, you know, and hopefully our paths will cross again. I will definitely keep you in mind. <laughs> I thank you so much for inviting me, Randy, and thank you for the good work you're doing. It's uh, it's really nice to to meet others who really – who really understand the problem and care about it and want to help uh, educate yeah. and counsel. It's terrific. So good good work, and thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, enjoy your day. Hopefully you're having beautiful weather up there in New York, and um, and you can have a wonderful <laughs> Not day. Bad. Okay. Yeah, you too, Randy. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. So so we are out of time, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.